Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 448, air date April 12, 2019. We are live. Thank y'all for joining. Definitely appreciate you for a special edition of AVO Live. I have a very special guest in the building today. I have Dr. Shiva Ayadure in the building. Dr. Shiva, thank you for joining me. Great to be here, Anthony. How are you? Uh, everything is great. You know, uh, it, it, this, this is going to be a good win because I posted it on my page, on my social media platforms. I spoke about it before. People were really excited. They they, they were all wondering, hey, you know, when's he going to be on? I have a ton of questions to ask him. So there's a lot here and I did my research on you. So there's a lot that I was really just not necessarily shocked by, but I was just like, wow, that's that's pretty that's pretty cool that he was able to be involved with something like that you know, inventing email. And there's some controversy behind that. It's a lot of different things. So we can get into all that today. But yeah. but before we get into all that, um, tell us a little, tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself um, and how we've gotten here today. Just, just a little bit about you that you want people to know straight out in front. Yeah. So I think Anthony at a very high level, um, you know, I'm a kid who grew up in New Jersey you know, worked in Newark, um, you know, grew up among everyday working people in New Jersey. But I also had another life before the United States. I also grew up as a, I was born in India, in Bombay, which is like a New York on steroids, if you want to think about it. Right. And I also, and I also grew up in a small village in deep South India. You know, it's almost like being in New York and then being in deep Mississippi, um, where uh, when I grew up in down in, uh, in Tamil Nadu, which is a small village in a state in South India, um, my grandparents were poor village farmers, like sharecroppers in some sense, subsistence farmers. They worked 16 hour days. Um, and my grandmother was a village healer. You know, she could observe your face. She had tattoos all over her arms and she was, and she could figure out what was going wrong with your body. And then she would figure out different mixtures of herbs or different medicines to figure out what was right for you. So I grew up in an India, which was uh, a very diverse India, but I also grew up in India where we had the caste system. Uh, some some of your viewers may be aware of it, where you had the priests on top, then the then you know the uh, the the leaders, and then the, what was called the Brahmins, and we were considered the lower shudras. So fact that my parents even got educated, that we even made made it to the United States, I was sharing with someone else, was probably like one in a trillion to the power of a trillion. So that's and I came here in 1970, went through the school systems in New Jersey. And, you know, uh, worked really hard because I valued what this country had to offer. So by the time I was 14, and I'm sure we'll get more into it, um, I started, uh, um, uh, I, I got an opportunity to go to uh, a university education in computer science in a very condensed program, and then started working full time at Rutgers Medical School in Newark while finishing up some high school courses, made it to MIT, and, um, uh, and went in and out of MIT, did four different degrees across multiple fields of engineering my PhDs in biological engineering. I have three other degrees from there too. Wow. Started seven different companies, but I'm fundamentally a, uh, if you want to talk about it, a scientist, an environmentalist, an author, uh, an entrepreneur, um, but most importantly, a, a fighter. That's, that's sort of the background that brought me here today, Anthony. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a very good introduction. Very interesting uh, background there. And I want to kind of dig deeper into that because, you know, here people complain about poverty. They say, oh, well, poverty is reason for this, reason for that. But I would think coming from India, you have a real understanding of what poverty is. How was a poverty in a place like Bombay compared to the United States? Is there any comparison 
or do you look at yeah. America as totally just a whole different level of success? Well, I, I think, um, first of all, it's all relative, right? And I'll give you an interesting story. You know, I went to a couple of years ago, I went to Africa, right? On safari. It's very interesting, right? You're out there and you realize how many ever thousands or hundreds of thousands of years ago, we were living out there like animals, if you want to think about it, right? Yeah, yeah. We were scratching, we're trying to get leeches off ourselves, fleas, and and you see, and you see um, the wildness of where we came from. And it's, it's interesting because you see where we came from um, and how much we've done. But you also realize that everything we have, you know, home, electricity, lights, we actually can pretty much uh, live with very little when you really want to break it down because we did live with very little. Um, so I find the extremes pretty extraordinary. So in India, it's a land of extremes. Um, um, so, you know, in Bombay, you could have in one picture, you could see beggars on the street who have nothing. And then you could see people in like a Mercedes Benz uh, driving around with probably the wealth that probably most Americans don't even have. You see extremes in wealth. So I would say the range of extremes is far more uh, diverse in India. You don't have as much extremes here, but the extremes are probably what's more extraordinary in India. But I think within that, you find that, you know, um, there's a lot of people, probably more in the United States, who you would call homeless, who have far less material wealth than we have here. Um, and a lot more people here who have access to more things than um, which the average quote unquote poor person here would consider that they have nothing. So I think it's really a mindset in some sense, and it's, it's relative uh, to another sense, um, but it really makes you think about the human um, condition and how much we can actually do with little. That's, what, that's why I brought up the Africa example. When you're out there in the wilderness, you see we came from that and you go to a slum in India and you see how little they have and people sort of figure out, I don't wanna say it's, they, they're happy, but they sort of, it's almost, uh, there's an interesting phenomenon it seems like human beings have an amazing level of adaptability, right? Yeah. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a relative thing. That's a good point you made there because yeah. when you go to these slums, you know, they work with, they, it's, it's, it's all they know, that's all they have. So they don't really, they can't really see too far beyond that. They're just where they are and they're able to make a life out of it. It's not just total misery all the time. So that is a very good point about the relativity. You could be living in a very rich country and think that you're absolutely poor, but it's all about right. just what you see. It's, it's a relative yeah, thing. I, I mean, it's interesting that, that when I, you know, so in, you know, Bombay to that small village is very different, no running water, right? Um, but you live in a very, very, what you would call organic surrounding. It's actually, people are quite happy. Um, you know, the air is fresh, you know, you eat quote unquote organic food. Um, but what was interesting was in 1977, when I went back to India, it was after seven years of being here, to answer your question in particular, that's when I noticed a stark difference between how we lived here and the fact that what I thought was normal was so starkly different. You know, I had an aunt who lived in a hut, probably an eight foot by eight foot hut, but she kept it beautiful, right? All, um, you know, uh, dirt floors. Um, and then uh, you you see, you, you saw how much they struggled. And that's when the lights went off for me. This is, I think, when I was 12 or 13, that how much I had in the United States relatively and that how important it was that I work really hard and make something good of myself. So I remember when I was leaving the train station in India, um, 
when I saw my grandparents, you know, deeply, you know, who had great love for me, I had great love for them crying. That's when this young 12 year old boy decided that I was going to do something significant, that it would be such a waste if I didn't work hard because of all the things I was provided and how much these people had suffered so much that I could even come to the United States and get an education. So that's when the lights went off for me that we are so fortunate. So in some ways for a lot of people who complain here, they should really uh, probably travel a little bit and go to some of these countries to yes. realize how much they have here and uh, start realizing that they should really start uh, taking advantage of the incredible things that we have here. You know, in the seventies, when I grew up in New Jersey, my teachers were amazing people. It was only many years later that I find out, for example, my chemistry teacher had three jobs, right? He was a high school chemistry teacher. He was a general contractor. And then he also worked as a carpenter and he put his two kids through medical school. So that was an interesting period in American history before the Department of Education came in where these teachers really worked uh, hard for, for the students and they and teaching was something they really loved to do. And they had other jobs to support their teaching. So I was very fortunate, man. And that's why I feel it, um, you know, from where I came from, uh, what, what I've gotten to, that it's pretty incredible that I'm even here and I have the opportunity to continue to fight and continue to do science and continue to work. So everything's icing on the cake, man. So I just have to make sure I keep working hard and I still try to do that just in reverence to all those people who helped me. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Now, you speak about coming to Jersey, growing up there. How old were you when you came from India to the United States? Yeah, I, I literally left India on December 2nd, 1970, on my seventh birthday. And I landed here three days later because we went through London. In those days, it take, used to take like three days to come here, you know, over layovers and anything. But I came here when I was seven years old. And, you know, to give you some idea, I was wearing shorts when I came here in December. And I remember it snowing as I got off the <laughs> stairs off the TWA flight. Oh, wow. But we first settled in Patterson, New Jersey. Um, and, um, and then my parents were, were interesting because their mindset was education was everything. So roughly every two, one and a half to two years, we kept moving to the better school systems, right? Because you didn't have school choice in those days. So whatever money they earned, they moved to the better school systems. We went from Patterson, which was predominantly African-American, to Clifton, which was sort of a, a mixed group of working class people, to Persephone, same thing. Um, and then to Livingston, which was predominantly very wealthy, all Jewish people in my last three years, because that was where they had one of the best school systems. So that was my journey through, you know, in New Jersey. But part of that journey was, um, you know, I really worked hard, not only in, in as a student, but believe it or not, I was actually a pretty good athlete, played baseball and soccer was your typical American kid. I had a landscaping business when I was young, learned how to paint from uh, immigrant Yugoslavian painters in summers. I, I was always making money somehow, even right, as a right. kid. Um, but as, as I was sharing with you, if you want me to share, you know, is when um, uh, by the time I was in ninth grade is when I had finished calculus. Um, and uh, and I had to, I, in fact, I started taking calculus and finished it by the ninth grade. And I was shipped to the high school to do that. So I was three to four years ahead of my peers in that because I was extremely competitive and wanting to do a significantly better because I saw how much this country had to offer. And, and, and that's where an important event took place. You know, you asked about the invention of email. If yes, you want, yes. I can talk about it now or at some other point. But that was probably the moment uh, in, in when a, a big inflection point took place in my life. If you want, I can talk about it now. 
Oh, go for it. Yeah. Might as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what happened in 1977, 78, Anthony, you got to remember um, a computer, right, would fill up your room and my room and probably two other rooms. These were mainframe computers. You know, we have more power, uh, probably 10 times more power in this iPhone now than we do in those uh, mainframe computers. So um, I, in, in the summer of 78, my mother um, had seen this article in a, uh, I don't know if you've been to New York, I don't know where you're based out of, but um, Washington Park, where NYU is, I used to have a little newspaper and a friend of my mom's had seen this article saying that there was a professor at New York University. By the way, New York University has a Corant Institute of Mathematical Sciences. I think it's the top three mathematical institutes in the world. And a professor there was going to invite 40 high school students to come to New York to have the opportunity to almost take like a Navy SEAL military-like program in computer science. So you would learn seven or eight programming languages. It would be an intensive. And I was one of those 40 students um, selected. So my dear mom would drop me off at five or six in the morning at, at the Newark uh, train station and I'd hike into um, New York. Now you gotta remember, this is when you're 14. Uh, New York was considered dangerous. Yes, you're walking through Washington Park. People wanna sell you drugs. Uh, it was a quite a wild environment, but you know, parents were much more, you know, um, feeling secure with their kids. And, you know, nowadays parents are afraid to send their kids down the street. That's right. I, I used to go by myself as a 14 year kid back and forth for this one and a half, uh, two hour ride. And by the end of that summer, I had learned seven programming languages, graduated top of the class. In fact, most of the kids were two to three years older than me. And after I did that, there was a very interesting high school teacher who said, hey, Shiva is quite extraordinary as a student. He shouldn't just be tied to the regular curriculum. And I was um, given the opportunity to get a job, a full-time job as a 14-year-old kid in Newark working for an experimental physicist by the name of Dr. Les Michelson. And Les um, had set up, which by the way, it's now known as Rutgers Medical School. He had set up a computer network between the campus in Newark, between the campus in New Brunswick and, and the campus in Piscataway. And initially I was doing medical research there using computers uh, to really understand baby sleep patterns, what you would call AI or data analytics. To well, back then you had AI going on? Well, AI is basically applying, AI has been around for a long time. AI is basically using pattern analysis and we can talk more about it. Um, so I was developing some early algorithms to automatically detect uh, watching the sleep patterns of the baby if it would go into what's called an apnea where it starts breathing and you could shake the crib. Um, and I ended up writing some, a paper on that. But because my programming skills were as good as a professional then, Dr. Michelson gave me a task. Um, I don't know how old you are, Anthony, but anyone over the age of 40 will remember organizations throughout the world had two, in, the, in those days, two ways that they communicated, right? One was at the landline phone. You know, you had the phone with the copper lines going everywhere. But there was another thing called the inter-office mail system. And this inner office mail system was throughout the organization. And it was like the social media before social media in the sense, the point of contact was a secretary in every doctor's office. And on that secretary's desktop, they had what was called a typewriter. Um, underneath was a trash can. On her desk was an inbox, an outbox, a, a drafts folder. Behind her were folders, metal steel case folders. On her desk were also paper clips. You get the idea? An address yeah. book. And the secretary, um, the doc, for example, if we were going to hire you for, for a job, the secretary would write up a memo, you know, dear Dr. Michelson, you know, from subject, 
if I and they could CC other people. So I may um, say, you know, we're thinking of hiring Anthony. Here's his resume, and you'd CC. CC literally meant carbon paper. So you'd have to, if you were CCing six people, you'd have to put carbon paper in six times and type up those six carbon copies. You would put it into an envelope, sometimes in a pneumatic tube, and you'd send it around the wow. offices. So this was called the inner office mail system, Anthony. And the CC was like a way to bring collaboration, right? Because other people could see the resume, they would write comments and come back to the person who sent it and you make a decision. So um, Michelson had early mini computers. Now in those mini computers, you could send little text messages. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about taking that entire system, Anthony, and converting it to the electronic form. And my customers there weren't the geeks with wearing lab coats. They were everyday women, secretaries, who most of the uh, intelligent, you know, elite uh, scientists thought were incapable of ever using the computer. So my job was to create a system which replicated all those features, you know, on that inner office mail system, because they weren't going to leave the paper world into the world of the electronic world until it had all those features, inbox, outbox, folders. That's why you see those in all these email systems. And that's what I did, wrote 50,000 lines of code as a 14-year-old kid. And most importantly, I called that system email. And it, it term had never been used in the English language. And the only reason I called it email was the operating system only allowed five characters. And it had to be an uppercase. And, uh, and I won one, I think there's, a, there's an award called the Intel Award. In those days, it was called the uh, Westinghouse Science Award, which was like the baby nobles. I won one of them. Um, and then uh, uh, I came to MIT, uh, very fortuitous. I didn't even know about it until two weeks before I applied. And when I came to MIT on the front page of the MIT newspaper, they had acknowledged three, they highlighted three kids out of the 1,041 kids who were coming in who had done something interesting. And one of them was me. And I was pretty, uh, as I mentioned before, pretty brought up to be a very humble kid. And it said, you know, this one of the incoming graduate students created, incoming students created this email system. That winter of 81, I was elected student body president, freshman president, and I got invited to the president of MIT's house, who was then the science advisor to Reagan. And he said, Shiva, it's too bad the, the Supreme Court doesn't recognize patenting. You see, Anthony, no one knew what software was. That's how new it was. Right. So they, they didn't even consider it at a machine that you could patent. But in 1980, which I didn't know about, the copyright laws were changed so you could use copyright to protect software. So uh, Dr. Gray said, you know, you should apply for a copyright. And in those days, there was no internet, PDF, or any of that. I had to write away on paper. I got the copyright forms, had to submit all my code back and forth. And on August 30th, 1982, I was issued the first United States copyright for email, recognizing me as the inventor of email, period. So I created the code, you know, I called it email, and I have the copyright, all right? So there's absolutely no controversy. The, the issue was I didn't have, you know, legal lawyers like Bill Gates's parents. You know, I didn't have a PR engine like Mark Zuckerberg, right? And the patent laws did not uh, allow you to get royalties from design. Copyright only supports, right, the literal work. So I could make gazillions of dollars onto it. It was only 1994 did the patent office allow you to patent software, they saw it as a digital machine. And that's again the problem, you have politicians who don't understand technology, so they're about 20 years behind you know, development. But the, the, the story is, you know, I went in and out of MIT in 2012, 
uh, 11, my mom was dying of a horrible disease and she had meticulously, uh, Anthony saved all of this paperwork in a beautiful Samsonite suitcase. You know, the computer tapes, the copyright, all the code, the editor of Time Magazine, Doug Ameth, the only journalist, as I've mentioned many times, the only one actually went through it. Most journalists don't do any more research. And he wrote an incredible article called The Man Who Invented Email, you know, in Time Magazine. And then three months later, the Smithsonian contacted me and they wanted all my materials to put into the Smithsonian. On February 16, 2012, a, a big ceremony was held and all my materials were given. And it was a great honor. That, um, that night, a young uh, Washington Post reporter wrote an article called The Man Who Invented, or, or Shiva Adre honored as the inventor of email. Now, you would think, Anthony, that should be an occasion to celebrate um, an expression of the American dream. But the day it went into the Smithsonian, Anthony, it was like a new skull had been found in Africa that you have to wipe away its history because it reset the origin of email. During those 35 years, I wasn't out there promoting myself, right? While big companies like Raytheon of the military industrial comp complex had rewritten history, saying a guy with a beard with glasses with a pocket protector would look was like that, a nerd. Was that, was that Ray Tomlinson? Yeah, but Ray Tomlinson didn't come close to inventing email. He did 15 lines of code change to update pre-existing code. And he, he, he admits it, 15 minutes of change, so you could attach text to the bottom of a file using the at symbol to a remote file. That's not email. If anything, that's caveman Reddit. Okay. <laughs> but in 2000, you know, in 2000 and, and, and uh, nine, you know, when the crash took place, a lot of missile companies were losing money. They weren't selling missiles, the, the military companies. So many of them got into the cybersecurity business. So Raytheon, which is right down the street over here, bought a company called BBNN for a song for around 130 million. BBNN for years had said that they invented everything. Okay. They're basically, uh, uh, you know, marketers so saying they were the inventors of everything. And Raytheon took that brand. They changed their logo to the at symbol and they had innovators, right? So Raytheon's entire branding was they were the innovators of the digital world because this gave them the brand equity to get a lot of money for cybersecurity contracts, about $250 million worth. So the day my stuff went into the Smithsonian, which I didn't know, I had basically hit a hornet's nest because yeah. these guys had branded themselves as the inventors of email. And that's how they got probably lots of government contracts, you know, using that branding. So the, the important thing here is the people who attacked me, now you gotta understand before this, you know, I'd been at MIT, was teaching there, uh, had, was on the front page of MIT for many other things. I'd been on the front page of Technology Review for creating a company called Echomail, which did automatic analysis of starting with Bill Clinton's email for the White House. I grew that to around a $250 million company. Uh, when I got my Fulbright award, I was on the front page. So I was like your model minority, right? Um, but when I said email was not done at MIT, it was done before I came to MIT in Newark, New Jersey, wrapped through a wrench into this larger narrative of where does innovation come from? And I was no longer willing to be a, a minority who was supporting MIT's notion of inclusivity and diversity. You see what I'm saying? Because, you know, I fit beautifully for them. But when this, uh, when I said that, it was almost like a public lynching took place. Uh, Gizmodo, which is a fake news newspaper, part of Docker Media, called me an asshole and a dick. Subsequent blog said this curry stain Indian should be beaten and hanged. Wow. It was wild. It's, 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 it's all right racism, huh? 
Well, there is racism, but it's not from the poor working class whites. This racism was perpetrated by white liberals. Yes, of course. Who are the real racists. And so the problem is the right doesn't really understand racism. So they try to deny this racism, which is wrong. And the left takes advantage of that vacuum. And they are actually the real racists. And they do it in a much more insidious way. You see, the, the left or what I call white liberals, as Ma Malcolm X called them, like to put everything into a box. Okay, in order to be an inventor, you got to be all hunched over. You got to look. You have to have sagging flesh. You got to have a beard. You got to have glass and pocket protector, Ray Tomlinson. He's almost like a casting call. But a good-looking Indian guy who lifts weights, who's an athlete, he surely can't be an inv inventor. And also an Indian guy who talks back, right? We're right. supposed to shake our heads and sit in the lotus position and meditate. You see? So I don't fit their narratives. It's not – racism is interesting. Racism is actually a bigger part of segregation. How – these academics, you know, sit with their little goatees and glasses and whatever, right? Sit in ivory towers. They try to draw little boxes around people. And I, I didn't fit their box, you see? Neither did Philo Farnsworth, who's a young boy who invented TV in Franklin, Idaho. It took him 60 years to get credit, you know? So the issue is the invention of email, when that event took place, you see like a bomb went off. And the people who attacked me were white liberals and fake historians, fake academics who built their careers on telling the narrative of the false history of the invention of email. But deeper than that is the notion, where does innovation come from, right? Who's smart, who isn't? When I was at MIT, man, I was on the front page. I was a great you know, toy for them to promote. But when I said email came from Newark by a 14-year-old kid, that throws a wrench. Now, maybe if I, from the race standpoint, maybe if I was a Jewish kid with, with you know, uh, blue eyes and blonde hair, I'd probably be on the stamp everywhere. Because when I went to a Jewish high school, I mean, I have a lot of Jewish friends, so they can't take this the wrong way, but this is just a fact. It's you know, Jewish, Jewish people are told they're the chosen people of God. They're the smart ones, right? So an Indian kid in Newark, New Jersey at 14 years old doesn't fit that. Had I been a Jewish kid, you know, I would have been like a Mozart, right? Because that fits the narrative. So there's a deeper story, and it's not Jewish or Indian. It's who is creating these stories of who's intelligent, who isn't. And in America, there is a caste system, but it's much more insidious. And the people who create these narratives are academics, the same academics who create climate alarm, the same academics who tell us genetically engineered foods are good, right, that the people in Africa need them. And, and that's what, you know, we get to the book that it's what's, what's about. But the invention of email is really not about me. I am the inventor of email. The real issue is why was there even a controversy? I mean, I wrote the code. I called it email. I have the freaking copyright. You go to Wikipedia, people have destroyed my Wikipedia page. Raytheon hires people, you see, or they have their minions. So you can't even update your page. And people have gone in and tried to give credit to other people. But where's their code? Where's their copyright, right? They didn't call it email. I did all those three things. So there's so the real issue for everyone listening is why is there even any controversy? That's really the question. Why was I called all those names? Now the good news is four years later, after Gawker attacked me, I was able to find a great attorney who's by the way Donald Trump's attorney, Charles Harder, oh. and and um, Charles had just sued Gawker um, uh, uh, on Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, Gawker had put out a sex video of Hulk Hogan, which went viral. Yeah, and, and, so, and Gawker is dead now. Well, well. So what happened was when I heard about this, he had sued Gawker. They had won, but Gawker appealed. I was a second lawsuit for thirty-five million. 
30 days after I sued, Gawker claimed bankruptcy. Oh. And then the karma of this was I was appointed the chairman, one of the co-chairmen of the bankruptcy committee to oversee the sale of Gawker to Univision. <laughs> so the, the important thing was that was pretty karmatic. Yes. All the three articles that they wrote were forced to be pulled down. And, 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 and the, you know, the white liberals at Gizmodo freak out and they call me, you know, someone who's attacking free speech, right? You know, the first amendment is for truthful free speech. You can say whatever you want, but if you say BS, get ready to also be sued for definite defamation and libel. It doesn't give you a carte blanche to say anything you want. So, um, so that's, that, that's the story about the invention of email. And, you know, there's no question who invented email. The issue is, why is there any question? Why was there a controversy created? And this is how those in powers work. When things are black and white, they actually create uh, fake science, fake history. Um, think about Galileo, right? And we'll talk, I mean, here's a guy who had clear evidence, you know, the earth rotates around the sun. But what he did was so heretical, they had to try to destroy him. When the, and when the evidence and the facts are so black and white, and I think that's where we are right now. Um, you know, the fake news behind fake news is fake science. And I think I'm in a very uh, uh, important position to speak to this and to actually teach people about it, not only teach people about it, but teach people how we can fight it. Because once you understand the dynamics of this, you can actually figure out how to unravel it and really go at the source of this. We know about fake news, but what is the thing that really backs up fake news? And my point is, it's really the fake science and the fake academia, you know, the, um, that really drives us. And we should talk more about it. Oh, oh, definitely. And that's a great time to plug your book here, uh, The Climate of Science. You have a book and the link is in the description box. Anybody wants to get it is right there in the description box. So you understand this whole thing about climate change and uh, alarmism. How do you feel about people like uh, AOC and many others talking about we have 12 years left? If we don't change our carbon emission, if we don't get rid of farting cows and stuff like that, we're going to be dead in 12 years. How do you feel about that whole narrative? And what's the real deal behind climate change, uh, global warming, global cooling, whatever they want to call it today? Yeah, I, I think the, 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 the one sense I can say to understand all of this is follow the money. OK, follow the money and the people who are actually going to pay for all of this nonsense or who are going to be exploited are everyday working people, the American worker. And that's what people need to understand. So first of all, before I go into this, let me just make a couple of things clear. First of all, if anyone wants to talk about who's a real environmentalist, you know, that's me, who's a real scientist, that's me, uh, you know, who's an entrepreneur, who, uh, who's also a fighter, you're looking at them. I sort of integrate all of that. So my life has actually been an integration of uh, being a scientist and being an activist. So um, if, if you go to Whole Foods, there's a new label called Clean Food, which really integrates um, organic, non-GMO, bioavailability. I'm the guy who created that, so, uh, thousands of products right now. Um, I'm the one who used my scientific research and a technology I built to write six scientific papers that expose that there are no safety assessment standards for genetically engineered foods. And I was a guy who took on Monsanto uh, about a year ago. Uh, I was a featured scientist in a film called Poisoning Paradise, produced by Pierce Brosnan, which talks about how the native Hawaiians on the western part of the island of Kauai have been completely devastated by big agrobiotech. Uh, you know, email saves 1.8 million trees per day. So if there's anyone green, you're looking at him. So um, and, and the other aspect of this, Anthony, is 
what we've done is we've tried to, on any major issue, climate change, cannabis, genetically engineered food, healthcare, you go down the list, guns, gun control, all of these issues, my positions may sort of um, get people a little bit uncomfortable because I don't fit the mold. So you can't, some people may think I'm a lefty in some ways, or some people may call me a right winger. And my issue is the left and right paradigm is how the establishment hoodwinks you. Because the reality is when you actually use the scientific method, there is no left or right. Because science doesn't care about your political beliefs. Science doesn't care. Science doesn't even care about your opinions. What science cares about is the scientific method. And that's what, that's what the Climate of Science book is about. It says, hey, what is the scientific method? Well, the scientific method goes like this. You see an observation in nature, you know, an apple falls from the tree, right? Um, and then we as human beings make a guess. Well, why did that occur? That guess is our attempt at explaining that. That guess could even be in the form of a mathematical model, right? Like G equals M1 times N2 over R squared, right? How two objects interact. Once we have that guess, then as a scientist, you're supposed to do experiments over and over again. And, and you're always skeptical. And that's the difference between a scientist and an academic. Academics are trying to be salespeople or scientists. Says, let me do that experiment once more. I don't believe it. And as you do more and more experiments, if, you're, if the results of those experiments match what your models predict, then you get a scientific law, right? Or you get real science. If it doesn't match, as, as the great Richard Feynman, you know, when the Nobel Prize in physics for electrodynamics said, or quantum electrodynamics, he said, it doesn't matter how good looking you are, right? Um, how nice you are, the science is just not there. So when you come to climate change, climate change isn't even about climate change. It's much more about the hoodwinking that's taking place in science and academia. It's about the ultimate reflection where we're at in the world right now, because what has happened with climate change? Okay, well, relative to climate change, does the climate change? Of course, right? Everyone says the climate's always changing. That's right. Number two, does, is CO2 a greenhouse gas? Definitely. Uh, do humans put out CO2? Yes. Uh, do greenhouse gases increase temperature? Yes. See, all those four questions are yes, but it's not a yes or no question. So what has happened is the AOC types, the fake scientists have created yes or no questions. They bounded it. And, but it's not a yes or no question. The, the, the real question is how much? I'll repeat that. The question is how much? How much does CO2 increase temperature, right? It, it, and, 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 and is that amount even uh, uh, negligible or is, it, or is it significant? That's really the question. So what they have done, Anthony, to put the science in a nutshell, they have created, look, the climate is a very complex model. I do modeling for a living. I've been doing, most of my scientific work has been, I've created wave propagation models in physics. Uh, I run a company which creates complex biological models. So you're looking at someone um, who understands mathematical modeling and physics and engineering. By the way, there's no field called climate science. It's a bogus field. It does not exist. So I want to clear that up. Um, what happened was when they created this alarmism, they said, we need climate scientists, but there's no climate scientists. The real scientists who understand the climate are physicists, astrophysicists, fluid mechanics guys. This is like a field of engineering and so, science. So, so, so to break in right quick, is there a thing called a climatologist? Is that real? 
Well, th that's the thing that exists, I think, 20 years ago in a very different field. Okay. Okay. That's nothing to do with climate science. Okay. Gotcha. So what I'm trying to say is when this whole hoopla occurred, $2 billion got released for impact studies in academia. So suddenly every Tom, Dick and Harry became a climate scientist because there weren't enough people in the science, scientists to actually understand the climate. So what is understanding the climate required? Well, first of all, I, I don't have time to go into the details. If you want me, I can, but here's it. You have the, the sun and you have the earth. In fact, not only do you have the sun and the earth, but this whole system moves around the Milky Way, right? The sun literally rotates around the Milky Way every 280 million years. Um, this entire cosmic system um, is involved in a process of heating and cooling the earth, okay? In, in, but by and large, one way that they have reduced this is you have the sun, which puts out around, around 340 watts per meter of what's called radiation, all right? 140 of that bounces off, right? So what do you have left? 200, right? Mm -hmm. That 200 enters the Earth into the atmosphere, into the surface, and then the Earth has to get rid of that 200. And it does through what's called convection and a complex process that involves the oceans, which are a turbulent fluid, interacting with the atmosphere, which is a turbulent fluid. The equations to understand this are so complex, man, that you can't, it's very hard to do any prediction, frankly. All right? These climate uh, fake scientists, have reduced this complexity to two variables, the global mean temperature of the earth and the variation of that temperature. And they have said CO2 is the single demonic variable that affects that, okay? Right. What they have said is that human be that every doubling of CO2, which they purport is gonna take place in about the next 20 years, every doubling of CO2 will increase the amount of energy that is held in the atmosphere by about 3.7 watts per meter. And that 3.7 watts will increase the temperature by one to three degrees, okay? Mm -hmm. Without getting into details, they have a very complex model which predicts a whole range of numbers. It's not even one prediction. And in fact, their predictions have not come true, all right? So to explain their way away, they say, well, we, didn't, we forgot to add this variable and this variable could be involved. The bottom line is this, Anthony, their model, their explanation is not matching reality. And if it doesn't, that means the science is not working. It's absurd. But instead of acknowledging that, they have wrapped it around massive amounts of PR, massive amounts of uh, fake news to alarm people. And the issue is why? And why are they alarming people? And why do they not want any scientific discourse on it? Because the scientific method requires discourse and debate, freedom. You know, without freedom, you can't have science. So you have to have freedom to have the space where you and I could argue, we could disagree, we could be skeptical. And out of that, everyone is challenged. And then you have the scientific method dictates, not, not, not people's opinions or ideas. And out of that, you get truth. So uh, this, uh, this guy, Schumer, along with a guy called Markey, has sponsored a bill in the Senate called Bill S-792, which is saying that any government agency which funds any type of forum or discourse or conference to discuss climate change should be prohibited. Wow. So, sounds so you, a can, lot. you can't even talk about it at all, huh? Just no, no discussion, no, no, no debate, talking. nothing. No talking. So how is that different than the Council of Trent, 
that took place in the 16th, 17th century, where they said that you cannot question biblical verses at all. And that's what uh, Galileo did, and that's what was used as a basis. So this it's called, in some ways, it's the church of climatology that they've created. But the, the bottom line is, I mean, I could go into the science of it. There's more and more data saying that the, the sun actually going around the Milky Way creates 10 to 15 degree variations in temperature and the cosmic rays that come from supernovas will heat the earth's temperature from anywhere between one to two degrees. It has nothing to do with CO2, you right. see? And CO2 is negligible in this entire equation. In fact, they can't even measure it because the measuring instruments that they use have a point, the error of the measuring instrument is about the error of their predictions, okay? <laughs> so. So what they so what they've done is they've done this massive hoopla, which the book talks about, um, and goes into the details from Al Gore's scamming people. From um, Al Gore's, of course, Andy. Yeah, I, I did a video called "Telling Trump to Get Out of the Paris Accords." It's a very nice video, and it basically shows that the Paris Accords allows China to pollute another 11 billion tons up to 2030. Right now, China's at 11.7 billion carbon metric tons of pollution. They're allowed, Anthony, to double that. India is wow. allowed to double it. So if the goal of being green, in my view, as an environmentalist, is to lower pollution, right? I don't think anyone will be against lowering pollution given the number one cause of death in the world is air pollution. So I don't think you want yourself, your kids, your family to have more polluted worlds. So we want to lower pollution. Well, the Paris Accords encourages China to double their pollution to 11 billion tons. If you've been to China, you can barely see in front of you if you're in the major cities. Oh, Beijing, uh, Shanghai. It's like I smoke a pack of Newports every day, like a pack of cigarettes constantly. Exactly. Just being outside. Yeah. Right. Or, or if you go to Delhi. But the yeah. Paris Accords, all the people got to Paris, you know, had a big partying event. You know, all the celebrities and all these people, frankly, many of them who don't even know any science. It's all one big festival for them, for themselves and a narcissistic festival. They all supported the Paris Accords, which allows China to pollute. All right. Has nothing to do with lowering pollution. So if you want to be green, I think you want to lower pollution, right? I think you want to do things to get, that get rid of sulfur dioxide, the real pollutants, lead. Well, China is allowed to pollute more. So this has nothing to do with being green. What it has to do is, is this. This is how they work. So first of all, they restrict freedom, Anthony. So you don't do real science. You do fake science. The fake science never really addresses the real problem. You create a fake problem, and then you innovate fake solutions, right? And those fake solutions are allowed to uh, be enforced to create a, an environment where you can now tax people or you can you can essentially get another pound of flesh from the American working people. That's what this is. It's no different than the king who used to tell the serfs to give him you know, extra money or taxes. That's what this is about. So they've created this alarmism. And then even some of the more rational people, they'll say, well, you know, it could occur, couldn't it? Don't you think we should be maybe precautionary? It's called the precautionary principle, right? So they drive you into that logic or illogic and they say, well, don't you think we need to put more windmills in or solar cells or this or that, right? It's so all money right there. What's that? It's all money right there. A lot of these companies it's, it's, will cash it's in. It's all money, but at the end of it, it's actually going to increase the cost of energy. And you have to understand the two most important money-making powerful things in the world are energy and healthcare. So these guys, Al Gore, politicians, people who know little celebrities, nonprofits, 
they want to, it's not even to them, it's about power and control. Because if you can be the gatekeepers of energy and you can be the gatekeepers of the discourse on healthcare, you're going to make a lot of money being the middleman. That's what this is all about. So it's nothing to do with real science because the real science of this is CO2 has minuscule effects. It does have an effect, but nowhere near other things as the science shows. Or in fact, they haven't been able to show that CO2 has any significant effects to really raising temperature. So they've created uh, an environment where real science doesn't take place. In fact, real scientists are destroyed if they say anything. Uh, there's a professor at MIT called Richard Lindzen. He just retired. He also wrote a letter to Trump saying, do not get involved in the Paris Accords. The entire MIT faculty attacked him. Later, they apologized, he said in private. But Lindzen is one of the world's leading meteorologists. He's a real expert in climate science. William Happer, who's, who Trump disappointed. These guys are serious physicists, not these guys who start little centers who have a degree in anthropology or sociology or biology. Overnight that they're creating centers, they're getting tens of millions of dollars in academic funding. Remember, most academics, unlike scientists, are prostitutes. Prostitutes um, for government grants. Um, in the 1960s, the Mansfield Amendment, Amendment was passed. And what the Mansfield Amendment did, Anthony, was remember, the military up until the 60s had a huge budget. And they would fund science, like basic research. In some ways, it was good because it was such a small piece of their budget. A lot of guys got to do really cool science and no one even um, no one even bothered them. But when the Mansfield Amendment was passed during the Vietnam War around that time, it said that no more scientific research would be funded unless it was for weaponry. So all, so all of these scientists uh, had to start relying on the National Science Foundation primarily, which is essentially a very political organization, which means science no more was science, it was dictated by politics. You see, it was dictated by consensus. Science has nothing to do with consensus. It doesn't matter. You don't vote on whether gravity occurs or not. You see what I'm saying? That's right. And so now they've created this word scientific consensus. That's an oxymoron. It has nothing to do with science. The fact that they have to say there's a scientific consensus, 97% agree, it doesn't matter. Well, 97% of the priesthood of the Catholic Church believe the sun rotated around the earth. It's irrelevant. I've, I've said the same thing before. People kind of attack me for it, where it's like, look, I mean, that's not a 100% consensus. It's not just set in stone. I mean, these things can change. You know, Pluto at one point was considered a planet. Now it's like a micro object, the asteroid. I'm not really sure what it is now, but things change. Yeah, well, the bottom, the bottom, the bottom line is the scientific method, which is a process where you come up with an idea, you have to do the experiments, and if your experiments don't match your mathematical model, something's wrong with your science. And all of these climate models don't match. I'll give you some something really wild about one of the climate models, which predicts how much the Arctic ice is supposed to melt. Yeah. Well, there's, there's about 40 of these models. Millions of dollars have gone into these models, 40 different models. One model predicts zero, no more ice will be there. Another model predicts all the ice will be there, and all flavors <laughs> in between. That's not science. The evidence of the definition of evidence is unambiguous predictions, okay? Which means you should every prediction you, you do should be the same, okay? For the same conditions. You can't have a hundred different possibilities. So this entire, uh, the climate change issue is really not about climate change, as I keep saying. It's really about the climate of science and how we have created an environment in academia where you cannot have free speech anymore.
So this is why these same institutions don't want the students to have free speech. You see, the kids who are going to college right now, the millennials or the people who are whatever, the Gen Zs, what's happening to them is they're being indoctrinated. They're being indoctrinated in how to please their professors, how to get A's, never to question them, never to challenge them in class. And the professors, the academics, who I distinguish from real scientists, they're people pleasers. They have to suck up to government grants all day. Yes. So the whole idea of academia is you want to get a, a job for life. Seven years, you have an opportunity to get tenure. So you're doing everything to suck up. That's, that's what the whole game is because you have to get published and you have to have other people say your research was good. So everyone is kissing each other. That's what's going on. So that's the kind of uh, educated idiots we're, we're creating now. The good news, though, is this, uh, Anthony, the, the optimism here is this. You still have scientists like myself and others, left, but more importantly, of the everyday American working people. You see working people, a plumber, an electrician, a nurse, a waitress who has to actually go to work and actually make something or deliver something. They can't live in the world of BS. They have common sense. So when things don't add up to them, they're just going to use their intuition. And to everyday people, the climate change stuff does not add up. That's why 50% of the people don't believe in it. And that's why the elites and the establishment are trying to convince everyone climate change is taking place using their soldiers of these educated idiots who have college degrees because they frankly don't know science and uh, they're sort of uncom unconscious incompetence. So that's the, so the book talks about the climate of science using climate change as a stellar example. But then I also talk about genetically engineered foods. You know, um, gun control. I go down the list and one of the things that emerges out of this, Anthony, is that you realize that those in power have figured out a very insidious cocktail. They know how to, first of all, create fake science, fake news, but they also bring a social justice issue. They mix this all together. So in all cases, they always have a social justice issue. So if you take genetically engineered foods, they say, man, we got to feed the poor darkies in Africa and the poor darkies in India. Those people with the big stomachs, look at this kid, you know, yeah. running around, he's going to have no food. So, so Bill Gates and everyone's, got, we, you know, we got to have, it's, it's like a neo-missionary model, you know, the, yes. only the, the white liberal with their goodies of science can come and save, save them. And what they've done is they've destroyed the biodiversity of Africa and India. You know, Africa used to have hundreds of different grains. Now they have corn, soy, and a few things, right? They've taken control of their soil, but they promoted that the world needs genetically engineered foods. And there's and, and for thousands of years, people have survived without them. You can use crop rotation. The real issue is irrigation and tools and education. Genetically engineered foods, my research has shown, has no safety assessment standards. But you see how they did that. They and, and then in academia, if you say anything against GE Foods, genetic engineered foods, you're not going to get tenure. Cornell University, one of the most preeminent agricultural institutes, even if a Nobel Prize scientist goes there and says anything, his career will be destroyed. Same with climate change. Look, I live in a, a town here where I, you know, in the place that there's a lot of academics. A lot of these academics know it's all BS, but they don't say anything because they're afraid that they'll lose grant money. And they can't okay. say anything because it's, it's money involved. It's money involved at that level. So you take cannabis. You know, look, when it comes to cannabis, I, it, it, there's three issues here. One is your personal rights. In many ways, I'm a libertarian. You can do whatever you want with your body. 
That's not what I'm talking about. Whether you want to do that or heroin or LSD, I would say you shouldn't do it. My wouldn't do it, but if you want to do it, it's up to you. Then there's a political issue, criminalization, decriminalization, prohibition. And then there's a scientific issue which stands on its own. My research has shown convincingly that the modern cannabis, which is 25% THC, is a deep link between cannabis, violence, and psychosis. Lots of papers have been written on it. No one wants to talk about it because about 10 years, 15 years ago, George Soros got involved. He funded all the big uh, cannabis lobbies. Oh, again, I didn't know that. And I, I don't know if you know, they, they did this whole thing. Oh my God, poor blacks are being thrown in jail. We got to help them. It has yes. really nothing to do with helping them. And we got to, you know, cannabis can cure every disease and it can't. What they've done now is created big marijuana. You know, um, Marlboro just put in $2.1 billion into marijuana. And the cannabis we're not talking about is not the stuff that grew in the Hindu Kush mountains 10,000 years ago, which was one to one THC to CBD. It's 80 to 80 parts THC to one part CBD. The modern joint is a delivery engine for THC, which, which destroys your internal endocannabinoid system. If you're schizophrenic or if you come from a family of schizophrenic or psychosis or you're under, you know, uh, 20 years old, you, you shouldn't be doing this stuff five times increase of causing psych psychosis and schizophrenia. We're not talking about the guy who uses one or two joints. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about heavy users who use it regularly. Evidence over evidence, paper over paper is showing that, but the news media doesn't do anything because you from Snoop Dogg to Martha Stewart, people are gonna, some people are gonna be billionaires and trillionaires out of this. And who's gonna suffer is the everyday working people because healthcare costs are gonna go up and a few set of people are gonna make a ton of money. So the book really talks about what is happening with academia, how the suppression of freedom is leading to fake science. And when you have fake science, we don't really solve real problems anymore, Anthony. We go solve fake problems That's and we get fake inventions and the fake inventions don't help our health. Now, the way out of this is freedom. You have to fight for freedom. I mean, that's why separate from being a scientist and all the other cool things I've had the opportunity to do, I've always been fighting, man. You go to MIT, when I was at MIT, I, I made sure more minorities could come to MIT, more poor blacks, poor whites, uh, women. I, I, there's a picture of me burning the South African flag. People may consider me a lefty, okay? Because frankly, I didn't think it was good that the South African people were being butchered there, you know? That's right, yes. Um, and uh, I, there's a picture of me holding up this, uh, a big sign on my PhD graduation, US out of Iraq. So you may call me a lefty for doing that. But the reason I did that was freedom and science are truly connected because you can't do real science unless you have the atmosphere to really question. And what's happening right now is you're told to shut the hell up if you even question climate change. You know, I went to an event where this Boston University professor with his nice little spectacle glasses and his little, you know, you know, these guys dress a certain way, right? Of They're course, you, you could pretty much identify him from a mile away. Yeah, and he's given this talk, you know, to all these 150 people in the library, it's all, uh, these are educated people. And in the middle of his talk, he says, you know, the oceans are getting more acidic. They're all going to be destroyed. I go, I go, wait a minute. I said, what's the pH of the ocean? He goes, what? You know, he goes, I go, what's the pH? He goes, oh, uh, uh, uh. I said, you know, basic chemistry, right? I said, the, the oceans have maximum, uh, their pH is between 7.3 and 8.5. By the way, pH, basic chemistry, one, Every, anything below seven, one to anything below seven is considered acidic. Seven is neutral and seven to 14 is, is basic. You learn this in chemistry, right? This guy knows it. 
But he's got a slide with a SpongeBob Bob cartoon saying the oceans are getting more acidic. <laughs> the oceans are alkaline, they're basic. So he backtracks. But he said that, Anthony, to, it was a propaganda thing. He was malicious because the word acid means like bad, right? Yes. And he goes, oh, well, the oceans are getting less basic. I go, well, that's like saying you're going north and you're going less south. I said, you use those words to basically alarm people. So that's what these guys, and he runs a center at BU, probably getting millions of dollars in impact studies. There's $2 billion. You and I could start some nonprofit right now and say, we're going to do how, uh, you know, climate change affects dark people. Okay. We could, we could get money. I, I've, I've, seen, I've seen an article about that actually about how, um, uh, climate change is being uh, done by whites in America and it's largely blacks and Hispanics that suffer. I've seen that article on an actual yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. So, so you could write any article about the impact studies. So billions of dollars are out here. So that's why there's billions of dollars that'll fund academia. So now you've created a bunch of 97% people willing to say anything because they got money coming in. You know, Eisenhower said something interesting when he was leaving office. He said that this is one of the most dangerous of this country, he called it the military industrial complex, that science would get politicized. And he said that the worst scientists are the ones who need grants, okay? Because the good scientists don't need grant money, all right? Because they, they, you know, they win fellowships, they get funded in terms of because they do great research like Olympic athletes. But the really mediocre guys, the dumb academics, they're the ones who are pushing this stuff. And some of them are the biggest charlatans in the world. So I, I think the way out of the, the good news is everyday working people get this, but it's really, really important that we understand the climate of science, not just climate science, but the climate of science. So you take gun control, for example, I talk about that in the book, you know, um, how many people die of gun control? Do you know, Anthony, it's about 40,000 people. Um, mm -hmm. You know how many people, there's another horrible thing called sepsis, you know, when people get infections inside, um, yes. through surgery or something happens. Well, about 40,000 people die of sepsis every year. Guess how much research is funded to figure out why sepsis occurs? Millions, tens of millions of dollars. And over 120,000 papers have been written on sepsis. You know how much research gets funded for gun violence research? Like one-tenth of a percent. Less than a, and only 400 papers have come out. And when I look at gun violence, it's 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 not just someone shooting someone, right? There's multiple factors involved here. Do, do these people have families? Do they have mentors? Are there surveillance systems? Do they have access to a gun being one of those issues? You know, there's about 20 different issues. And what we've done is we've reduced everything to a single variable, take away the guns or the second amendment. So you have the left and right always fighting like this. And they never look at the multiplicity of issues. So same with climate change, reduce it to one variable. CO2. These guys like to reduce everything to one variable, healthcare, single payer, non-single payer. And that's the way they take advantage of people. They never address the real issues. So the book is really about, let's take issue, issue, train people the importance of freedom, train people from freedom comes truth. And then when you have truth is when we can innovate health. So that's what the contribution is. And I think it's important because I think what Donald Trump did in a very powerful way was he smashed at the left-right narrative. You know, he went after Democrats and Republicans. Yes, he, he, did. he made fake news a very, you know, commonplace term. Even like 
NPR is using it now. They're doing articles on it, you know? And I think it's an opportunity now to go one level deeper below that and see who really profits from fake news. Who's the wizard behind fake news? Wow, that's a, that's a lot there. Now, you mentioned gun control, and I'm not quite sure if I see where you stand on it. I know it's not necessarily one or the other, but how do you feel about gun control? Would you be in favor of what well, they're talking about now, which is like, let's just ban all guns, or would it be more of a complex thing? And what would you actually do relating well, to gun control yourself? Well, it's like saying, let's get rid of CO2, okay? Right, yeah. I don't know if you know, if you go below 188 parts per million of CO2, you know what happens? Everything dies. In fact, right. we're in a CO2 famine. Look, the Second Amendment was created to protect us from our government. Yes. That's why it was created. The founders knew, you know, Jefferson, you know, if you go to the Jefferson Monument, he, you know, he talks about from time to time, democracy has to be fought for over and over again. And the Second Amendment was created to protect us. So what's happened is just like CO2, they've said the guns are the problem, right? CO2 is a problem, the gun is a problem. When the research actually shows, the, by the way, they don't do enough research on this. The one really good piece of research done by a woman who showed there are five factors which cause like these rampages, one of them being access to guns, but she said something interesting. Her research found one of them being if kids watch too much violent games, right? If people are antidepressants or if, they, if they're under bullying. It's not just one of them, but she found out even if you remove any one of them, the rampage goes away. So why remove guns? You see what I'm saying? Her research showed there's a multifactorial issue. And even if you remove one of those factors, the rampages go down. So what they've done is if that is in fact true, then why take away the second amendment? That's what the issue is. Why take away people's right? Because it looks like there's other factors that are actually involved. So you don't need to you know, make this the demon. So my, my point is, that you know, there was a Dickey Amendment that was passed in 1996, which did not allow gun violence research. I say, let's really do the research. But personally, I think the Second Amendment next to the First Amendment, the freedom of speech is given teeth by the Second Amendment, you know? And without the Second Amendment, the First Amendment has no real teeth to it. So I don't think we should be taking away people's guns. Um, I think we should go back. You know, look, when I grew up in the 70s, used to go to a fair, you know, like those fairs and used to have uh, BB guns, That's but right. they, had they had 22s, man. No one was shooting everyone. Um, we know for a fact when people come off antidepressants, their level of anger goes way up. The research is clearly showing cannabis mixing with other drugs, be it alcohol, six times increase in violence among high school kids. All right. Uh, we know uh, that there's many, you know, the fact that people don't have the family structure anymore. The yeah. fact that when you do have mental health illness, that the surveillance, is, the people see stuff, but no one says anything. There are many, many different factors here. And the research that I've seen shows that any one of them removed can take it away. So why do you want to take away something that's one of the most important uh, rights of, of, of a free democracy or a democracy to renew itself? A very good answer. Absolutely. Now I'll take a little bit of a pause here. Read some of these super chats. Uh, thank you to Chuck my ad who says, wow, great guest ABL excited for you. Thank you for that. Liza Jane Williams says, thank you so much ABL for this awesome guest. You rock. I appreciate you. Chuck my ad also says besides Thomas Massey, any other, is he kind of, I, I might kind of like not written properly. Any other like him in government? Uh, I guess you, you probably answer yes. that if you want to a little bit later. Yeah, Tom, Tom Massey, actually Tom went to MIT. Um, 
you know, he's a good guy. Uh, I like Rand Paul, you know, a lot. I, I think Rand Paul thinks uh, logically, you know, uh, you know, he and Massey actually supported Trump's withdrawal from Syria while the deep state, you know, wanted him to stay there. Um, but look, it really comes down. I think the comment that the, the, the viewer just said comes down to what people want. What yeah. we've done is, you know, you know, I can you know, you, you know, if I want to take the Muhammad Ali route, I could say I'm a super genius. Okay. And I say that with some level of humility in this sense, Anthony, that the establishment wants to give people dopes and puppets that they can manipulate. They don't want intelligent people like me and fighters fighting for them. That's why, you know, when I ran against Elizabeth Warren, you know, we ran as a Republican, the local Republican party is basically the left nut of the uh, Democratic party. They're one. <laughs> And, and I'll talk more about that. There is no right. Republican Party in Massachusetts. If people want to understand the center of the center of the center of the deep state, you only need to look at Massachusetts. It's the alpha and the omega of the deep state. This is where they innovate all their insidious work. So when I ran as a Republican, man, they should have embraced me. Here I am, man. I'm, I'm like the epitome of meritocracy, am I not? But they That's had right, a dope, right. a guy called Dirty Deal, who we exposed, who faked a Photoshop picture with Trump, okay? The guy was a Democrat for years. And that's who Charlie Baker, the governor, who claims he's a Republican, who hates Trump, uh, had, had anointed to, to run against Warren. So when I realized that, I ran as an independent. And the last time an independent ran, Anthony, ever for the US Senate was about 20 years ago. He was allowed on the debate stage, a white guy, okay? Nothing again, not white or black, but it was interesting. He was allowed on. He had less than 1% vote uh, polling and he got 20,000 votes. I got close to 100,000 votes running as an independent. They didn't allow me on the debate stage. There was only three of us. It was unbelievable because the system, left and right, Republican and Democrat, do not want fighters, real people representing the electorate. They don't want everyday working people like myself. They don't want people who actually do science representing them. Had I been on that debate stage, I would have easily gotten half a million votes. And it was because of us, why we destroyed Warren. We, we had fake Indian, real Indian signs everywhere, Anthony. I don't know if you saw them. It says only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian. I it have seen a, that, yes. Man, it was an awesome, uh, it was an awesome campaign. We had hundreds and thousands of volunteers all over the state putting them up. That's why Elizabeth Warren, I mean, I sent her a DNA test kit. She didn't refuse to take it, it went viral, but she was forced to take that DNA test kit because we were hammering her and she was very stupid what she did. And it found out she was, you know, faker Indian than we all thought. But the point is that it's really what people want. You know, this election, what I realized is I'm going to run again in 2020. What we realized is Democrat and Republican, they're the same, man. Trump, the only reason, look, Trump would have run as a Democrat or a Republican, let's be honest, but he was Donald Trump. He was a Democrat for years. He saw the opening to hijack the Republican party. And that's what he did. In Massachusetts, the Republicans and Democrats were one. So my thought, and I've been polling people, is I may run as a Democrat, go right into the heart of the beast and primary the current guy, Markey, who is AOC sponsor on the Green New Deal. OK. Oh, wow. OK. Because it doesn't matter. Right. You realize yeah. you wake up one day and say, wait a minute, why am I giving all this allegiance to the Republican Party when they, you know, they didn't even want to take the immigrant, the minority who worked hard, who was an entrepreneur, started seven companies and made tens of millions of dollars. I'm like the perfect Republican candidate. But they're more into their own, you know, crony capitalism, you know, their crony politics. So why not go right into the, the belly of the beast and expose 
the the you know the real deep state, which is the Democratic Party, which wants to make people dumb, dependent, and disarmed. That's what that organization is all about. So that's what we're thinking is strategically. I mean, it makes sense because you have David Clark up there in what was it, Minnesota? He was a Democrat for a long time, but he was clearly a conservative. Yeah, yeah it, doesn't it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah it's irrelevant. John F. Kennedy was your classical liberal and your conservative. I mean, he, he would be a Trumper right now, you know, by all, all means. There's a lot of uh, what they call blue dog Democrats, JFK Democrats, who voted for Trump in Massachusetts. So my view is it goes back to this value system of do you believe in truth? Do you believe in hard work? Do you believe that, you know, working hard and learning skills is a good thing? You know, do you believe that freedom should overcome slavery? It comes down to these very fundamental values versus the fake nonsense that's being promoted by the educated elite, right? And Massachusetts is the epitome of that, right? So it's, uh, you know, Malcolm X is one of my heroes. He called it the Northern white wolves. You know, he said, look, in the South, people are pretty straightforward, but the Northern white liberals, they're the most dangerous ones because they act like they want to help you. Meanwhile, they actually want to destroy you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm down here in the South. I'm in Tennessee right now. I'm in Chattanooga, probably Listen. about an, about an hour and a half from Atlanta in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And it's it's all good down here. Everybody I meet has been pretty nice. It's really matter white, black or whatever. But yeah. when I was in New York City, <laughs> I was in LaGuardia Airport with my uh, MAGA hat on. Yeah. I was getting some of the, the craziest stares from a lot of white liberals. I didn't know yeah. what was going on. I just came from Chattanooga and everybody was so nice and kind. All of a sudden I'm up here and I'm getting just thousand mile stares like staring into my soul I'm like oh okay i get it i'm a black guy <laughs> with, with a maga hat on and the white liberals don't like it so you correct up there it's, it's a whole different ball game most most certainly but my, my question to you would be would you stay in massachusetts or would you move somewhere else a lot of us are leaving the north going to yeah. texas and georgia would you stay there or go elsewhere well you know it's an interesting i just i just read this article that came out said that massachusetts is the top five or six states where the most people are leaving yeah yeah and uh i think uh the, the top 10 states i think eight of the 10 are in the east coast it's an interesting thing man you know uh i guess i like challenges anthony you know i feel like um that massachusetts is a belly of the beast yeah it yeah. really really is Think about it, you have Harvard University here in a one mile radius of Harvard and MIT. Facebook is there, Google is there, Monsanto is there, Big Pharma is there. You can literally see all of them. So, and I've been part of this since 1981, since I came to MIT, I know all their weaknesses. So my view is if we can, uh, uh, our campaign, we're very proud of what we ran. We destroyed a lot of these narratives that people held, right? Uh, Boston free speech rally, you may know this took place on August 19, 2017. I was invited with a bunch of other speakers to speak at the Boston Common, uh, which is a place where, you know, Frederick Douglass has spoken, right? Mm -hmm. So um, uh, literally three days before that rally took place, Charlottesville occurred. The mayor of Boston, a Democrat, and the, the fake Republican, Charlie Baker, all got together and they held this huge press conference because, you know, a variety of people were going to speak on August 19th here. Joe Biggs, myself, green people. I mean, it was it was a full spectrum of people on the left and the right. They said Nazis are coming here. They branded all of us as Nazis and white uh, supremacists. Wow. So it's, it's quite amazing. But anyway, on principle, I decided to go. We go there 
and 40,000 people show up. Wow. 40,000 people. And what they had done was there was a center stage. They had put barricades. They didn't allow any cameras in there. So it was like 40 of us were isolated like animals in a cage with the police protecting us and 40,000 people. So I was a keynote speaker and it, it's, a, it's a wild scene. Luckily, we got it on videotape and behind me, you see a sign which says like black lives do matter. You know, my issue is, yeah, they do matter. Let's move on. Over here, I have no to Monsanto, clean air. So if anything, and behind me is a whole color full of people, black people, white people, Chinese people. Pretty inclusive. Huh? Pretty inclusive. Very inclusive. They had branded that people are screaming as Nazis, KKK, unbelievable. And I, I saw that scene and I realized what level people can be manipulated. And the people on the other side, there was a lot of black folks there, minorities, who were thinking that the Nazis were up there because right. the mayor of mayor of Boston was running against a black guy that year. Okay. Mm. And he wanted to appease as though he was a friend of all the African-Americans in Boston when he's done nothing. The actual situation of black people in Boston, the average black person in Boston's net worth, you know what it is? It's $8, Anthony, yep. $8. So they have created segregation, but meanwhile, they use this fanfare to support themselves when they need and to, and to you know brand other people. When if anything, I'm the guy who's always fought for people. So when I when I look at that scene, right, it's it's very easy to understand how the cleverness and the insidiousness of what's going on. And uh, I have a prediction to make on your show today. Okay, and you should. All right. So here's the prediction. There's a guy called Charlie Baker, and I'm telling you the level of insidiousness of the deep state. You know, every time Trump moves forward, they have 20 other ways they want to try to take him down. And, and in my opinion, I don't even care Trump if he does anything good. The fact, meaning any bill that he passes, the fact that he got in there, the fact that he keeps attacking them, to me, that's a victory for the American people, to, particularly the working people. But I, my view is in 2020, they are going to have other people primary him because they know that there are no Democrats that can beat him. That's right. So, so right? Because there's no one out there who can beat Trump. Then the Democrats are all idiots, okay? Um, so therefore, my theory is they're going to have somebody run against Trump in a primary and try to oust him in the primary. And I think one of those people that we should watch out for is the governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, okay? He's been promoting himself. If you look uh, as the, the best governor in the nation, right? And at a St. Patrick's Day thing, he said, you know, I'm only one one thousandth Republican, referring to Warren. He gets a lot of Democrats voting for him in this state. Um, he supports the whole climate change nonsense. He's very clever under the R logo. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And he's the only, if you look consistently, he's been attacking Trump over and over and over again, unafraid of attacking Trump. So my view is that the deep state may run a guy like him and he may make an announcement in June to go against Trump. And I believe that the Democrats and Republicans in the primary will get behind him. And that's what we should watch out for. That's my prediction because there's no Democrat that can beat Trump. So I think they're gonna play an insidious game and try to primary him out using some guy like a Charlie Baker. 
I think that could happen, but I think that Trump is pretty much solidified himself for 2020 because it's just a, it's a popular kind of thing to be a Trump supporter nowadays. Yeah, he's gotten a lot of people on his side, so I'm not really sure that anybody could do anything. But you're correct. I think that any I think that both the left and the right don't want him in there. They're gonna try to primary him because it can't get anybody on the left. They're trying to get people like uh, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. Not really gonna yeah, work. These people have no they, they, their message doesn't carry. So they're gonna, so I think you know uh, and believe it or not, this guy Baker's out there, Republican. I haven't seen any other. You know why doesn't a full Mueller report get released? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, his son molested a woman on the airplane in Boston, full wow. view, and it's completely hidden away. Right? Maybe they yeah. should put that report out. But yeah, maybe so. <laughs> yeah. So so my point is that those within the deep state establishment, which is the academia, the military and big industry, these this triangle never lets up, man, that it's not something that, you know, every victory forward, you always have to watch out. You don't fall two steps back. Oh, absolutely. Now, um, as far as what you do right now for a living, it's been a lot of time since, you know, the email and everything that you've been doing. What have you been doing recently for a living? Oh, so so I work every day now. I get up at four in the morning and I work until probably 10. So the late, so I run, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, the last company I ran uh, was a company to analyze email. Okay. Okay. And we grew that to a very large company. So if you sent, in fact, if you send an email today to QVC, our technology analyzes email, figures out the attitude, the issues, automatically routes it. And I did that originally for the White House many years ago. And then I spun that onto a company. The latest company I'm doing right now is called Cytosol, C-Y-T-O-S-O-L-V-E, and another company called System Solve. Let me tell you what Cytosol does is for my PhD work at MIT in 2007, I created a new technology to mathematically uh, model your body on the computer or complex diseases on the computer, the molecular reactions. So if you look at the human cell, Anthony, it's a it's like a big, big uh, bag of chemical reactions. If we could theoretically model that, you don't have to kill animals. You don't have to waste time in test tube testing. And you could reduce the amount of time it takes to discover new medicines, lower the cost of healthcare. So that's what my new company does. So in 2007, after I left MIT, I spent about five years writing a lot of research papers, validating it, doing the science. And then in 2013, I spun it off. Just to tell you the power of this, it's, it's as revolutionary, potentially more than email. This technology um, allowed us to discover two combination drug for pancreatic cancer in a record 11 months. I'm using this technology now to validate supplements, herbal therapies, all of these supplements. If you ever go to Whole Foods, a lot of this stuff may work and a lot of it may not work. Our technology figures out at the molecular level why it does. It eliminates the need for animal testing. We've right now modeled Alzheimer's, we've modeled pancreatic cancer. We're going after every major disease to find cures and ways to prevent them using cytosol. So that's what I do right now. So I work with large companies, small companies. We've actually in the middle of um, uh, you know, raising a large fund so we could spin out a bunch of companies. It's an engine for medical innovation. That's what I do right now. Wow. Very impressive. I'm trying to be like you one day, you know, because I, I do my own thing. I have the YouTube channel, I, you know, do website stuff, but I want to do a lot more. So that's well, definitely they all, inspiration. They all work together. You know, what you find is that um, the more you do, the more you can do. Yeah. That's what I find because you 
start seeing interconnections of those things. And my love of medicine and computing really came from watching my grandmother who used her ability to observe the face. She could predict what was going on in someone's body using India's traditional system of medicine. And she would make herbal formulations that were for you. So that's what I'm doing right now. This technology allows us to make chemical formulations suited for you, which may be different for someone else. So it's personalized medicine. So it's, 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 it's a cool company. It's going to be a, a very, very successful company. We're growing pretty well, but you know, you can't do science. You, what you realize is you can't really do science unless you participate in um, politics and the fight for freedom. And that's why if you look at the founders of the country, like Jefferson and Franklin, right? These guys were scientists, they were architects, but they also participated in politics and were statesmen because they knew that you had to do both. And what we now have, have we have, we don't really have, a, we have a lot of fake scientists and we have a bunch of idiotic politicians. And that's why I think our running and people like me, I mean, I think 2020 is the last time I'm going to do this. So anyone who's listening, you know, you should get your butt out there and support us because, you know, winning in Massachusetts um, could be a very, very powerful, um, you know, movement in many ways for other people, other everyday people, other people actually uh, do things to get involved, you know, not only for billionaires and people supported by billionaires. Oh, absolutely. And you spoke about medicine. A question in the chat. What do you think about Deepak Chopra? So I know Deepak quite well. Um, so so I give you the so many years ago, I created, you know, the other thing I did was I created when I went back to India for my uh, research in 2007, I figured out a way to integrate Ayurveda and yoga. Um, and the found the problem with so what Deepak Chopra did was he was backed by a guy called Maharishi Mahesh Yogi who really brought meditation from India here. Now, Deepak was actually a follower of his. Deep, and then Maharishi used Deepak as his front man. And I think Deepak and Maharishi had a falling out. Deepak wanted to do Indian medicine in the United States, bring that here, but he really couldn't explain it well. So he went off to the guru world. You know, I started doing spiritual stuff and Deepak did his own shtick there. Uh, when I met Deepak, he really loved the stuff that we've done. And um, we started teaching my course at his center. In fact, more people started coming to our course than his. But, uh, you know, so my view with Deepak Chopra is he's more of a, uh, a guru spiritual type, much less of a guy who really does real scientific work. Got you. Now, he's not quite like uh, Kumare, right? Not quite that, not quite that level. Have, have you seen that movie, that documentary about him? No, I haven't. Which one is that? Oh, Kumare, you got to see that. Uh, my, okay. my girl put me onto it. It was about a guy that was, um, well, I think he was born in India, raised yes. in America, and he was a fake yogi. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was It was like a whole documentary, oh, so, so and they you, followed him. So, yeah, so you got to understand. So when I, um, so here's the thing. What, what Deepak is good at is Deepak is good at understanding his audience, okay? Yeah. And he's able to simplify stuff. Um, but, um, you know, he, um, doesn't do the real science of India, you know, yeah. um, uh, one thing, you know, when the email controversy was going place, right. That's around when I met Deepak, Deepak had heard of me. One thing I, uh, you know, when I explained what was going on, he said, wow, you did invent email. And he did give me the opportunity to present it, you know, and that was at a time when no one was giving me the opportunity. So, so I, you know, I, I, uh, uh, I applaud him for doing that. 
was at a room for around probably about 50 or 60 of these major celebrities. Half of the room got up, you know, and, and uh, uh, gave a standing ovation. And about 20% of those people were crying at the end of it. But what I'm trying to say is, I think Deepak had gone through his own journey, you know, as a person from India coming here. So he understood some of those things. But, um, you know, on the science side, you know, Deepak, I don't think has met, you know, the level of standard I'd support, you know, he's more of a, of a, uh, you know, a guru, you know, Gotcha. Absolutely. Wow. Now, I got a few more super chats here, so I'm going to read those off, give you a little bit of a break because you, you've been dropping a whole lot of knowledge and I really appreciate you coming on. You know, definitely an excellent yeah. interview. Uh, let me see. Uh, Noble McGraw says America has hope with these two. I thank you for that. Um, Fred the Felon says this guy has big balls. <laughs> I love him. Thank you for that. Uh, G. Carjala says namaste. Thanks for being here tonight, Dr. Ayadurai. Thank you for your super chat. Fred DeFellin also says, no need for research. Keep it the way it is. As Blaze said, Second Amendment. Uh, Chad Cass says, can people pre-order the climate of science? It's already out, isn't it? Yeah, people can pre-order it online. It's going to be out very soon, but we're giving a discount to people if they pre-order, particularly through your show today. Um, it's just to support people. Anyway, one of, the, one of the things in the climate of science is we also talk about the Green New Deal there and what it's really all about. You know, one of the most important things, uh, uh, Anthony, is, you know, freedom. And the, um, right now, you know, for example, people are using chat, people use email, right? We use all these different media for communicating. Um, in an earlier book that I wrote called The Future of Email, one of the things I brought up was um, when we all signed up for free email, remember we all got on Hotmail, Google, Yahoo, all these things, a lot of people don't understand we gave up our freedom. And it's a very interesting thing because we talk about the Second Amendment, but remember the First Amendment is um, equally or more powerful, right? Because it's the ability to have free speech and the right to assembly. In the First Amendment, a lot of people are unaware, but the United States Postal Service was created as an institution to protect the First Amendment. Meaning when the Postal Service was created, it was at a time when we didn't have chat, right? We didn't have Facebook, we didn't have YouTube, we didn't have cell phones, right? What we had was a physical letter. And Franklin, who was the founder of the Postal Service, was a visionary. The idea was that I should be able to send you a letter. You should be able to send me a letter for a low cost. That means every American could communicate and no one could interfere with that communication, Anthony. And if someone did, 20 year sentence in prison, okay? pretty powerful. The Postal Service has that. And if you think about it, man, the Postal Service is pretty amazing. They send letters and they make it there, right? That's right. Uh, uh, they're so reliable that Amazon needs them, okay? Um, but the important thing is when email came, um, I met with the Postal Service in 1997 because I was running this other email company uh, of, uh, uh, for analyzing, doing AI with email. And I met with them, I said, you know, you guys should offer a public email service because Hotmail and Yahoo are creating a dangerous situation because all of their emails, whether you know it or not, if you read their privacy statement, they own your emails, right? They can read them. You don't own your emails when you sign up for free email. So my view is a postal service should offer a public email service, which would be protected by the same laws of the postal service, which means if anyone inter intervened, 20 years set in prison, right? Yeah. Well, they thought it was a, crazy idea. They said, who are you? You're a 29 year old kid. What do you know about 
the Postal Service, anyway, fast forward to 2011, the Postal Service is going out of business. They're going bankrupt. I reinitiated that and you know, it appeared on Time Magazine and Facebook, I mean, not, not Fast Company, where uh, I said, look, the Postal Service is a bunch of idiots. They should have implemented my program. They could make billions of dollars and they protect Americans. That resulted in the Postmaster Inspector General asking me to write up my solution. They commissioned a report for me. So I gave them two ways that the Postal Service could really protect communication, which is offering a Postal Service branded social media and email offering, right? So that way you can't get kicked off video or Facebook or social media. It's brought to you by the Postal Service. And I still believe in that. And the reason I'm sharing that is that freedom um, cannot be, uh, we can't give away freedom to private companies. You see, it needs to be, it needs to be part of an American capability, right? Um, and what we've done is Facebook, Google, Apple, uh, a few companies today actually own the channels of communication between Americans and they can control that channel of communication. That's why I'm a still big believer that the Postal Service is the institution that should be providing some of this infrastructure for us. Now, that's a good segue into my question about net neutrality. Are you a fan of it? Well, so so you have to understand that when they talk, when they've been re recently talking about net neutrality, um, they only have half of the discussion. So you have Google and Facebook and everyone saying, oh yeah, we need to have net neutrality, right? But what they have forgotten, right, is that Google and Facebook and Apple are the on-ramps to net neutrality. They actually own the pipes and no one's controlling them. So net neutrality actually involves two things. The physical pipes, right, what the telecommunications companies own, and yes, then yes. the on-ramps to those pipes, right, the information on-ramps, which are owned by Google, Facebook, and a few other providers like that. The only way we're going to get to true net, true net neutrality um, is when we, the people, own the actual network. Mm. And right now we don't do that because if you look back at what happened, remember many years ago when there was the uh, Egyptian uh, protest taking place, a lot of people may not remember this, but the students in Egypt were rising up against the government. They were all using social media and it was growing and growing and growing. Then when the working people joined the protest, which is when it's really dangerous, when working people strike and leave their jobs, in one instant, Hosni Mubarak, the dictator of Egypt, made a phone call to Vodafone and they just shut everything down. Okay? So we have to understand that my communication to you right now is going over AT&T or Verizon lines. Okay? Yes. It's going through Google's software, which is like the on-ramp, but the physical lines are going through... Um, you know, telecommunication companies. There's about five of them right now, right? Four or five of them. So we, so even, so the, the net neutrality that we're talking about, it's sort of a pale version of what really needs to occur. And that's why I go back to the Postal Service. There's new technology, Anthony, called mesh networks. If you put a small antenna on your home, and let's say I lived about a thousand meters away, one on my home, and someone else lived a thousand meters away, we could actually create what's called our public internet. It's a network owned by the people for the people, right? No one, Vodafone, AT&T, no one owns that. Now, my views, there's a postal service in every town. They have the ability to put one of these antennas up 
and create a public mesh network. Mm. And that's what really needs to be done. If we want to have true net neutrality is to create that mesh network. Without that, it's really not net neutrality, man. So it's like, the, you know, these left and right guys are fighting over, frankly, nothing, in, in, in my opinion. If you want true net neutrality, we have to own the network and the Postal Service. Look, if you want to go private, you want to use Facebook, Google, go do it. But right now, we don't really have any more freedom left anymore because we don't actually own the communication networks. Any one of us can be shut off. So in the mesh network situation, would it be owned by the federal government, local government or by individual well, people? No, no, it would be. It was, so it's an interesting thing, right? Because if a post, it would be it would the Postal Service is an interesting institution. It's government and it's not government. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's a very um, like a quasi institution, which was designed so it could always be owned by the people. Right. So imagine if a revolution started taking place in the United States. Right. The Postal Service is still supposed to deliver mail. Up until the 1970s and 60s, 50, 60 percent of the mail for the Postal Service was political email from left and right. You know, newsletters is very vibrant. So the Postal Service, um, I think, is a vehicle to do that because constitutionally we would always be protected or given this infrastructure better than any other infrastructure available to us today. And it would be protected by law, which means even if the government tried to intervene, they can't do that. Okay, well, very good. I got a few more super chats. Let me get to a few kind of like rapid fire questions sure. because, you know, people have, you know, submitted their questions. Uh, thank you to, let me see, Truth Seeker for the donation. Definitely appreciate you. Thank you to Sun730. Thank you to Omar Adams who says, smash the like button. Thank you, Dr. Shiva. Uh, Shreve says, thank you so much for this ABL and Dr. Aya Durai. Chuck my ad says, Shiva, opinions on AI drones. We talked about that earlier, but thank you for your donation. Uh, he also says, Bannon says, China will win with uh, MFTG, 5G, and uh, One Belt, One Road. That's a good point about China. I didn't even think about that. You brought yeah. up uh, the, the pollution. And I think I saw something that said like 95% of the world's plastic in oceans comes from 10 rivers, eight are in Asia, six in China, two in India. Uh, how do you feel about uh, 5G, first of all, and then also uh, China in general and how they have pretty much started to dominate the planet? Well, so, so you, you know, it's really interesting because um, China's GDP is around 11 billion, right? I mean, 11 trillion, right? India's is around two same amount of size and number of people and india's is one-fifth of china's mm. china is not even eyeing india china's eyeing the united states as their main competitor that's right and and the united states gdp is now at around 20 trillion right so they're about a little more than halfway catching up to the united states um but he, here's the interesting thing what i've always not understood is if you take india and the united states india everyone speaks english right mm -hmm. that we fought the british um uh india on the west is in is uh, you know has saudi arabia which which supports islamic terrorism right you have pakistan which is sort of the center of it and china funds pakistan mm -hmm. so i so i've heard a lot of interesting things that the deep state in the united states and the deep state within india has always kept these two natural allies apart in in my view i find it interesting that the united states and, and, and India, the biggest democracy in the world, don't have a much of a closer alliance. Mm. And they should because um, 
China, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia, that nexus, uh, China actually supports, in some ways, in my view, Islamic terrorism, because they, they have deep alliances with, with a lot of these uh, places in Africa, and, and particularly, you know, in Pakistan, you know, not in Africa, but in Pakistan in particular. So I think Ch China has a very, very different long-term game than the United States does. And as a part of that long-term game, um, it, you know, it involves, uh, uh, you know, building up their military, their air force um, in unprecedented levels, you know, because one of the things that made the United States very powerful was air power. And China wants to grow in that. I think recently, I think we probably saw, I think Russia, uh, China uh, and India recently just had anti-ballistic, what anti-missiles for satellites. There's only yeah. four countries which can do this. So I think, I, I think the world is going to be um, a, a very interesting place if it's if the United States and particularly the people here don't get their act together to realize, like the average Chinese kid or the average Chinese institution right now um, in math and physics they're doing phenomenally better than the U.S. institutions. And math and science are ultimately the way that you win in any of these games, math, science, you know, physics, actual um, learning skills. So I think this is going to be really, really important for people to understand um, and have emphasis in that in, in people in Congress. Otherwise, we're going to lose the game to China. You know, about 40 years ago, if you looked at the top 20 um, uh places, uh, institutions that did always the best research, the top 10 were always American institutions. Now those top 10 are Chinese institutions. You know, actual papers coming out in different areas of math and physics, if that's any indicator of what's going on. Oh, definitely. Definitely should be cause for alarm for sure. People kind yeah, of so like- five, people So like 5G, what people are talking about, you know, the advantage that the Chinese government unfortunately has is it's top-down dictatorial rule, right? So if they decide overnight they're going to put in 5G, it just happens like light speed. And what they have done is they, they are, you know, their deployment of 5G also involves upgrading all of the equipment to be able to accept it. Um, and then on top of that, they've created a very, very uh, deep fascist type state. You know, I don't know if you know that, that China's deployed around 20 million cameras. Have you heard about this? They've I've not heard about that. Yeah, they have 20 million cameras deployed. Those cameras have gotten so good with AI on them, they can recognize your face as you travel all over China. Mm. And, and they have a database. This is not like out of George Orwell. This is what they have working right now. And for every citizen in China, they have what's called a social score. Okay. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. So if you are supporting the state, if you're against the state, they score you. And so based on that score, you were allowed to travel to certain locations or not allowed to travel. So that's what China's becoming, you know? And I think, you know, we really have to start questioning who, who we want our allies to be and what does the world look like? Oh, absolutely. 100%. So I asked right before our questions here. Um, now we are talked about climate change. Oh, minimum wage. How do you feel about that? Should it be a minimum wage? Is it too high, too low? Fight for 15. I, what I are you doing? No, I, I, maybe it's the immigrant in me, you know, <laughs> I, I never, uh, I, look, I think that, um, you know, there's so many, uh, potential jobs available. You know, when I work, you know, in that, in, in, in Rutgers medical school, the first two years, 
I didn't get, I got, I got free lunch. The third year I got paid a buck 25 per hour, but I, I worked because I was so enamored on how much I could learn. And I, you know, I'm not a big proponent of minimum wage. I'm actually not a big proponent of welfare. Um, I, what I'm a proponent of is recognizing that you have to actually work. And this country has incredible opportunities, you know, that I think it comes back to the earlier part of our conversation. People have no idea how, how in many ways, how good they have it here in terms of how you can pull yourself up. How many things, look, in 1978, we didn't have cell phones and we didn't have the internet. You can learn so much stuff today. You could get a PhD education online if you want it. That's right. You know, you have access to so much stuff today. So, um, you know, the concept of a minimum wage in some ways is putting people into a different mode of thinking. And, and, and what's happening is, look, if you actually look at what Karl Marx said versus how what I call the, the lefties interpret Karl Marx, they don't even get Marx, okay? In Das Kapital, Marx actually talks about the proletariat. And he defines a proletariat as working people, um, Anthony. Working people meaning people have skills who actually produce something. In Das Kapital, um, Marx also talks about a very different word called the lumpen, L-U-M-P-N, proletariat. He defines those people as people who sit on the sidelines, leech off the state, or thugs or criminals, etc. And what's happened is th this, this groups like AOC's group, the DSA, and the fake lefties who try to act as though that they're radicals for the working people, they're not even, they're not even supporting the proletariat or the working people. You know where they're supporting? The lumpen proletariat. Marx would be spinning in his grave if he saw even what they were talking about. And Marx was also against distribution of wealth. Okay. He was never, he said, it's not about distribution. It's about owning the means of production, which is very different. Yes, in yes. fact, in Marx's time in London, there was a group of people who wanted to give this UBI, like this idiot Andrew Young wants to do. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's basically, enough, it's even a more sophisticated way of enslaving people. And Marx said, that's, that's, that's a dumb idea because what does is that actually enslaves people. So the real goal, if you want to really think, think about it, working people should own the means of production. That's very different than giving people out free food or free, uh, just free stuff. Now, I'm not saying if someone's dying on the street, you don't help them, right? Yeah, that's much different. Just, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about able-bodied people who have the ability to work. You know, there they are hanging out all day, whatever, shooting up, having fun, you know, having, you know, being irresponsible, doing whatever they want. And us as a society supporting that. And there are people who scam the system like that all day long. And I don't think that's America. And that's not what this country was built on. So, you know, philosophically, I think that you have to create a very entrepreneurial environment. You know, uh, when I worked for Dr. Michelson, I was so happy to work for him. I learned as much as I could. Right. So I think it, it all comes down to what kind of philosophy do you want to create, you know? Do you want to create a vibrant thing where you support those people who are go-getters, want to work hard, or do you want to create an environment where you create entitlements and people who think that they can get everything they want without doing anything, you know? And I think I, think I support the former because I think it creates peop better people. I think it creates stronger people. I come back to the fact that we made it out of the jungles, man. Absolutely. 100%. And there's no reason to keep going back, trying to, you know, go down to a lower level. You want to keep it advancing in life. That should be the goal of everybody uh, on planet Earth. Yeah, I think it's about 
setting a goal, you work hard, it takes discipline, and this country offers more um, opportunities still today than any other country on the planet. Oh, absolutely. And then based upon your answer to that question, I think I know where you stand on affirmative action, but I'm not quite sure. So well, yeah, I, well, well, so look, affirmative uh, action is a very, very interesting thing because, um, you know, before Martin Luther King got involved and he gets a lot of credit for the civil rights movement, which I and I, I don't think Malcolm X gets anywhere, you know, enough. But in my view, this, you know, the, the, the there was the history of slavery in this country. There 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 was a movement. Uh, the civil rights movement um, and the civil rights movement was hijacked ultimately by white liberals. Okay. Yeah, correct. And, and instead of addressing the real issues in inner cities, which needed infrastructure, which needed better school systems, which needed like Botech schools, they never addressed that issue. Instead, they threw a band-aid solution, which was called affirmative action. So a lot of people fought on the streets for civil rights. And so in many ways, they got a band-aid solution which was affirmative action so to the extent that that was something that came from a lot of hard-fought people's names who fought for it i defend it to that extent you know from what i'm saying is i don't think it should be attacked but what i'm saying is it wasn't the real solution anthony the real solution would have been to build infrastructure in inner cities right and without ever putting out the money to do that or without having the gumption to do that we decided to defray the problem to affirmative action, which wasn't really the solution, right? The, 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 so, so, like when I was at MIT in 81, a lot of the students, that, so in a, I'll give you MIT as a case in point. In, in 1966 or 68, there were only two black people at MIT, okay? Mm-hmm. One of them was a woman called Shirley Jackson. She was getting her PhD and she threw down her dissertation and she lectured all these professors, what a disgrace it was that there was only two black students at MIT. Subsequently, you know, somewhere after that, about 10 or 15 black students were allowed to come to MIT, many from the inner cities, most of them from the inner cities. Those 10 students took over the faculty club at MIT. And they said, you know what, you let us in here, but we're never going to be able to make it because our inner inner city school systems are so bad, we're probably going to fail in calculus and basic physics in freshman year, right? Because they were set up to fail. Correct. So those institutions set up tutoring programs, you know, to catch up on what their high schools didn't offer. So minority students would come in in the in the summer before MIT. I, I used to be a teacher in one of the programs. We would teach people physics and calculus, fill in the gap because their high schools were so bad they didn't teach them that. And so when I came to MIT in '81, a lot of my close friends, you know, were from inner city. Um, high schools and about 50% of them would make it. All right. Because they didn't have the infrastructure and MIT. So many ways, affirmative action was a setup to say that they did something and to watch minorities fail. You see, um, and the ultimate, the real solution is to build infrastructure. You never lose by putting in a Votech school. You never lose by putting, teaching people skills. You never lose by creating mentorship programs. I think that's ultimately what needs to be done. One of my ideas is that we take the old public libraries, right? Which, you know, very few people go out and get books anymore. You get them online. Why not take those public libraries and make them mentoring and innovation hubs? And some are starting to do this where you could rent tools, you could rent a hammer, you could rent 
all sorts of different kinds of things that you can learn, and it becomes a hub for innovation at the local level. Because that's why I was so fortunate, right? I got selected to go to NYU, and then I found this guy in, in Newark who taught me. Ultimately, I think all real uh, innovation and education is local, and the more we can teach people skills, that's where it really helps people. I think affirmative action, you know, was um, a gain of those people who fought. So, you know, I don't want to spit on them for the fight that they did, but it was a Band-Aid solution. It wasn't the real solution, which we needed infrastructure. Oh, absolutely. And then that's also a good way to go into the next one, which would be reparations. This has been a really big topic. A lot of people are talking about they when they give out X amount of dollars for reparations, people like uh, Pete Booty Judge. Um, I forget the other person's name, Marianne Wilson, if I'm not mistaken. A lot of people are kind of dodging the question. How do you feel? How do you feel about that topic specifically? Reparations. Well, first of all, it's sort of nonsensical because there's no way to a implement it. Correct. B, uh, if you really dive into it, and I thought about this with a lot. Okay, so reparations to who? Okay. Well, how far do you take this? Because you know there was slavery in Africa. Okay. Um, because a lot of the Africans had slavery, right? So how far do you go back? Okay. Then you have the fact that there were also working class people here who were abused, right? So if you really want to start, start talking reparations, you start finding that maybe we should go back to the queen of England, right? How far do you go back, right? Who, who do you, so the issue is, um, when you really start looking at reparations, it's what is the intent of this, right? What is the actual goal of this? Is the goal to actually help um, a set of people who you feel were oppressed and denied, or is a hope to actually uh, distract from the real issue of oppression? You see, the thing is, those in, 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 in the elite establishment, particularly what I call the not so obvious establishment within the Democratic Party, they are very, very good at distracting the real issues. Right. They always want to blame something else except get down to the heart of the real issue. So the issue when it comes to reparations, first of all, you can't even implement it because how far do you go back? And then who do you give it to as well? Because a lot oh, of us are, are mixed. I mean, how far do you go back? Yeah, because um, and, and but the real issue comes down to who is really oppressing who you see what I'm saying? So if you want to talk about reparations, let's talk about all these politicians who are in Congress, right? Let's talk about all the lobbyists, right? These are the people who make money every day screwing people over. And if you wanna talk about reparations, let's talk about right now. There, we need to have reparations of those people um, who oppress people every day, you know, who take advantage of people every day. You know, uh, you know let's talk about, you know, the uh, big tobacco companies, right? Let's talk about big pharma. Let's talk about big insurance. Let's talk about big healthcare. These are the people who are uh, need to pay reparations to the everyday American people who they tax, who they exploit, who they profit from. We don't need to go back 400 years. We can talk about right now, but they don't want to talk about that. You see, they don't want to talk about the, the fact about who is exploiting who today. They want to distract it to somewhere else because if they did, they'd have to put a mirror up to their own face. Oh, 100%. And the next one here is immigration. I know, I know you're an immigrant, so this one, I'm pretty sure you'd be able to answer from your personal knowledge of your experience and also just what you know, because you're a very intelligent person. Donald Trump, I think when he was running, he said he wants to cut legal immigration from about 1 million per year to about 500,000. 
and he also wants to build the wall on the southern border. How do you feel about reducing legal immigration and also the border wall? Yeah, you know, there's if everyone, if uh, anyone listening, there is a um, two parts on immigration, right? Uh, allowing immigrants in to America, if we think that's a way to help people, first of all, that's not true, okay? You don't help, you know, you have close to 7.5 billion people in the world, okay? I think we allow in a million people. One million divided by 7.2 billion, what is that? That's 0.000, I mean, it's, it's like a fraction of a percent, right? Yes. We're not really moving the needle on anything by letting people, like, I would argue, I'm gonna have a very interesting um, position on this. I would argue we're actually hurting the world. Let me tell you why. Um, when John Kennedy, when Sputnik went up, right? The satellite went up, right? The United States freaked out. They said, oh my God, we're behind in math and science. We need to let more technical people in. That's when a lot of Indians were allowed to come from India here, right? Now, if you think about India, India is a very poor country and it takes a lot to create an educated person there, right? Someone who knows science and engineering and math. Well, in some ways, when we opened the floodgates and we allowed people from India to immigrate here, we actually took some of the best people. As a brain now, drain. Right, was that, a, was that a good thing? You, you I mean, isn't, and what we did was, um, so you have people like my parents come here. Obviously it was a great benefit to me, but in retrospect, the issue is, was it such a good thing for India? Wouldn't it have been better if my parents were not allowed to come? Suppose they stayed in India. They would have probably helped India. Maybe they would have overthrown their own dictators and oppressors in India. You see? Because when you take away the best people, who do you have left in those countries? Because, and you're not making that much of a dent. And you could also argue that what you're actually doing, excuse me, what you're actually doing is you're actually not forcing this country to build its own infrastructure, right? So you're doing a temporary gap. Okay, let's let in some of those people who are technically doctors and engineers because we didn't bother to produce enough here, right? And you never fix the gap here. So my views, I don't think it's, a, I don't think reducing legal immigration is a bad thing because why don't we, why don't those people who are the best minds stay in Iraq or Iran or India, et cetera, right? Because maybe by those good people staying there, they will get aggravated enough that they'll have good revolutions in those countries, you know? Because That's look good. at India for 70 years, we had a bunch of idiots running the place, right? And all the 2 million of the top cream of the crop came here from India. So who was left there was not the same caliber, caliber of people to fight there. So there, there's an argument to be made. It's almost like you're doing this brain drain and you're removing the good revolutionaries and the good fighters. Look, America got the founders of this country are pretty amazing people, right? That's right. Without them, you wouldn't have what you have today. Now, concerning security of the border, look, uh, my dad came here first. We had to wait a year in line. We were separated from my father. And then we came. It was considered an honor to come to this country. But more broadly, if you look, everything in nature has borders, everything. So I'm, I'm, you know, I believe in engineering. I believe nature is the ultimate engineer. Everything has borders. When a baby grows in the placenta, you know, the placenta is a border, it protects the baby, right? That's Every right. human cell has a cell membrane around it. The cell membrane is deciding what goes in and what goes out, right? You, it's not like a free open borders. You would have nothing. So nature knows that a, a, a tree has bark around it, right? 
But we have skin. Everything has borders around it and everything modulate what goes in and out. So anyone who thinks putting board, I would argue that we should actually build what I call like the uh, a shield of peace around. If we could use electromagnetism, uh, I, I, yeah, I think we should stay the hell out of other countries. Yes. I think we should let them do whatever that, you know, let them go kill themselves if they want, right? Um, I think we should get our act together. I think we should build the infrastructure of this country. I think um, that's the first thing, you know, the infrastructure is crumbling all over the United States, physical infrastructure. Um, eight of the 10 states in the, in the United States along the East Coast have the worst infrastructures. I tweeted this out a few days ago. So you're, you're looking at a situation where we're lagging in science, we're lagging in engineering, China is explosively growing, and we're worried about going and fighting other people's ridiculous wars. Um, it's not to be isolationist, but it's to say, hey, let's get order together. In India, for example, this guy Modi, who's sort of like the Trump of India, you know, he's the first nationalist India's had in a long time. And that's a good thing. And I think getting one self in order, like your physical self, like you would do individually, getting a nation together, protecting your borders is, is it's, it's basic security, man. And, it, you know, look, I used to live in Hollywood, right, for many years. And all of those celebrities who talk about open borders, they have very nice fences, very nice borders, all sorts of security systems around their homes. So, you know, you, you preach one thing and you practice another thing. The reality is you need strong borders. You need to enforce the basic immigration policy. But more importantly, you should really reconsider why are we even letting in people into this country? Is, how does it, does it actually help us? It probably does help us but we may be destabilizing other countries and long-term we're actually hurting, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, stability globally. Oh, that's right. Absolutely. Very, very well answered. I think the same way because, you know, especially at the Southern border, a lot of the drugs, a lot of the violence, the cartels, they pretty much yes. feed on the fact they're able to get in here freely. A lot of dead bodies. I've been to the border. I've been to El Paso, Texas. Yeah. And I've heard some of the craziest story. People, people getting put into canisters of acid. And a lot of that is because they're able to come through the border freely and do whatever they want criminally. So that's creating a big problem in other countries that we are indirectly causing. But my last question would be about abortion. Mm. Uh, how do you feel about it? I'm seeing stuff in Virginia. I think in New York State as well. They're talking about full-term 40-week abortion crazy, man. yeah and then for any reason just for you know a uh, uh, mental distress how do you feel about that i think it's ridiculous look i'm a biologist also right um you know uh anyone forget even the religious significant religious aspect of this within two to three days of conception the epithelial forms around you know this growing baby it's a separate creature so anyone, it's a separate being, it's a separate human being by that point. Anyone who says that it's only one being is out of their mind. There's two beings here, period. You know, it's a biological fact. What you're talking about is even, is, is, is essentially murder in my view. You know, Correct. after the baby comes out, I mean, I, I can't believe this is allowed. I don't, I don't I, it just blow, blows my mind, you know, so I'm completely against it. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you for coming. This has been a great, great interview. A lot of uh, great topics discussed. Um, before we go, I just want to get everybody up to date with you about who you are, what you got going on. You have Dr. Shiva here and his book that he has coming out soon is called 
the climate of science a link for that will be in the description box below you can check it out right now pre-order that do that right now and what do you have coming up do you have any event schedule any yes speaking? yes so what what i do is every two weeks um you know as a public service i teach systems thinking what what that means uh anthony is when you look at the world or any type of problem or any type of system like the healthcare system the educational system the banking system these are what i call complex systems and so i run a uh, public service i do it for free because i believe it's i'm very passionate about this i believe um you know there was a time we needed land peace and bread you know uh but now we need truth freedom and health and in order to get that you need to look at the world you need to be able to think systems systems thinking so every um other week you know this friday this coming i'm sorry this coming saturday next saturday uh i teach a systems thinking course uh, if people want to know more about it, you can tweet at me or, or email me VA Shiva, V as in Victor, A Shiva at VAShiva.com. And I'll give you a private invitation because we do it over Zoom and we do it where people physically come into our, our building in Cambridge. And I teach you in four hours. In the first two hours, I teach you the theory of systems thinking. In the next hour, we look at the healthcare system. And every other week, we also take a new system. Like last week, we, we literally draw out the entire banking system. We drew out what gun violence looks like. And we actually look at this as a complete systems problem. So that'll be coming up next Saturday. If people are interested in coming to it, either uh, DM me at VA underscore Shiva, which is my Twitter account. Or if you want to help our campaign, you know, we've announced that I'm running for US Senate against a guy called Ed Markey, who is AOC sponsor of the Green New Deal. And uh, we have a very good shot at beating him. And uh, so people want to donate, they want to volunteer, you can go to Shiva, S-H-I-V-A, senatecom and uh, keep an eye out for our, you know, sign up on our mailing list and then we'll keep you posted. But the systems thinking workshops are open to anyone and you can log in from your home, you get a Zoom account and you can just listen to the whole lecture and you can participate. All righty. Now, I got one last thing I want to say just on a personal note. I think you should run for president 2024. How about it? Well, here's the thing, man. I wasn't born in the United States. So I can't run. Oh, oh that's right. That's but right. I, I, I almost forget. <laughs> yeah, you could run. I'll be your secretary of something. <laughs> oh, I mean, that, that'd be fantastic, man. Thank you yeah. for joining, man. Really, really yeah. appreciate it. Is there anything that you want to say that I forgot to mention that you want to get out there that I should have mentioned? Well, I, I, I think the most important thing, Anthony, is appreciate the time. You know, we should come back. You know, we have a, um, uh, you know, I'll be doing some, you know, I, I'm constantly writing. I'll be doing some other books. We'll keep you posted. And I think uh, we should stay in touch. And I think the most important thing for people to take away is that uh, I believe, you know, we need to put the working people first in this country because they're the people who actually create value. People who get up every day, you know, try to make, you know, small business people, um, you know, people actually have skills every day. And I think ultimately that's what this country is built on. And I think the next two years, in my view, are going to be extremely critical. Um, and I don't mean climate change, I'm talking about critical in how we retake control of uh, having an environment for free thinking and freedom of discourse um, to really get a truth. Because ultimately, I think each one of us, if you believe in the concept of a God or a creator, each one of us is a, is, has, a, has an opportunity of a divine connection. And we each need to take advantage of that because you know life is very, very short, Anthony. And I think you got to live it 
in a very powerful and strong way, always living it by those principles. So I guess my real message is everyone should, you know, know who they are and be the light and find the truth and find your way. That's pretty much it. And I'd appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you for coming, man. Definitely uh, a nine sure. for sure. Take care. Thank you. All right now. Take care. And y'all be good. Y'all have Thank a good day.